listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. I'm going to deal with today a huge Christian controversy that really has raged for hundreds of years. And I'm going to deal with it. And then we're going to talk about the broader aspect, which is, should you get involved in this? And then what do you do when there are controversies like this in the body of Christ? How do you go about dealing with them? How do you decide whether or not it's even worth your time getting involved? How it's even worth your time getting involved? And, and I'll tell you a couple of personal stories about how that, uh, how these things, how I came to this realization, to be honest with you. Uh, and so if you haven't done it, and you're just jumping on, welcome, share the broadcast. We're getting into this. So first let's talk about, about controversy. First of all, and yeah, I realized somebody asked, is this going to be a rant? Part of this probably will be a rant, but we'll see moving forward. But let's talk about, first of all, controversy. What do you do? when there is controversy of any kind? That's the first question. What do I do when there's controversy of any kind in the body of Christ? Well, that, de- that depends on what type of controversy it is, right? What type of controversy is it? First, you gotta look at it and see what the basis is. Okay, so what if it's something that has to do with a person, uh, a, a public figure, for example? What do you do that when it's, you know, something comes out about uh, world famous pastor so-and-so or, you know, whatever. Um, in those cases, let's say it's a personal controversy about an actual public figure. In those cases, in my opinion, there's really not much you can do or really anything you should do, right? Because let's say, for example, a world famous mega pastor, uh, is found out that he's been embezzling millions or he had a moral failure or, you know, whatever it might be. Well, first of all, the first question I would ask there, is that my pastor? Because <laughs> if it's not my pastor, it doesn't directly affect my life, right? If it's not my pastor, it's not going to affect my life in any way other than it's, it's heartbreaking to see it happen, right? Um, the other thing, the other side of this is, there are certain ministers that though they may not be your pastor, they, they uh, had a, a deep impact on your life. And um, it, it, for example, that, that happened in the 80s, you know, with, with uh, uh, Brother Jimmy Swaggart. You know, there were so many people who were so extremely impacted by his ministry and by his life that many, although he wasn't their pastor, many were devastated when they saw that take place. And of course we love Brother Swaggart and his family loved them very much. And, um, but you know, people were devastated by that. Well, uh, one thing you find is that people can put too much of their faith in a man rather than in Christ. And I realize that uh, people are at different levels of, of faith and maturity in the body of Christ. I get that. So there might be some who are uh, more immature in the faith that they, they didn't see it coming. They have no idea 
how to feel, what to do. Their faith seems to be shaken because this happened. But when you see something like that, you keep in mind, you know, that, that person is not my savior. They're not my Lord that, you know, my faith is not in a man. My faith is in Christ. And so if it's not your actual pastor, then there's not really much. You're not directly affected. The worst thing you could do is go around talking about the person, gossiping about the person, uh, spreading, you know, spreading the story. As I've said before, you don't know if everything you know is truth anyway. Some of it might be lies. And then you, you get into bearing false witness, which the Bible tells us we should never do. And so uh, it's not even worth talking about. It's not even worth talking about. Um, and, and so I know a lot of people like to do that in the, in the guise of, have you heard that you need to pray for pastor so-and-so? No, what's going on? Oh, well, let me tell you all about it. And then that's, it's just an opening to talk about a person. And, and I say, don't even get involved in that. There's, there's nothing. They have people that will, that are over them, that will work with them, restore them. It's not my business. I just pray for those people and say, God, restore them, help them, strengthen them, convict them, bring them back into right standing. You know, I'm praying. I want to see them succeed. I don't want to see them fail. So you pray for those types of people. But if it is your pastor, obviously you might be in a position where you have to change churches. I get it. It's more, it affects you more. But again, the same rules apply. Uh, He's not your savior. He's not your Lord. Christ is the one who you've put your faith in. And um, it's, it's not worth going around. All right, so that, that's a personal controversy. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic. Uh, and I'm not dealing with personal controversy today. But then let's get into something, something else. One of the things that happens within the, the body of Christ is, you know, you might be able to see very clearly political controversy. And we can see for sure that, uh, you know, political controversy is one of the things the enemy has tried to use to destroy uh, churches, congregations, relationships, that uh, people have been torn apart by political controversy. And I understand that one of the things that we always talk about when we're talking about political controversy is, are my beli- do my beliefs line up with the word of God? Do my beliefs line up with the word of God? The only thing you can do, the best thing you can do is to try to make sure that everything you're doing lines up with scripture. You know, I can, I can never, I can never vote for murder. I, I don't care what form it takes. I can never vote for that. I can never stand for that. I could never support that. And so it, it blows my mind and I'm not, and I'm not really, I'm just going over the topics, but I'm not dealing with political controversy today either, but you know, somebody's foreign policies are not as important as human lives. Somebody's foreign policies are not as important as human lives. And so not everything you vote for is on the same level, obviously. Not everything you vote for is on the same level. Um, And so you do your very best to not let things divide you. In fact, we, we taught you from Colossians, where the Bible says that you will have to make room for one another's faults. Not everybody. Again, you know, we, we, we fall into this trap sometimes of thinking that every Christian's the same. Every Christian's the same. Every Christian is not the same. And you can, you can clearly see that. And you have to remember that Christians are coming into the body of Christ from different backgrounds, different cultures. They were raised differently, 
different values. What seems to be okay to one is completely off limits to another. And so you have to realize that everything has to be evened out by the objective standard of God's word. But at the same time, people are still, the Lord is still working with people. The Lord is still working with people. So you have to do what the Bible says, the apostle Paul, make room for one another's faults. And that would fall into this area too. But here's, here's a more important one. And this is what I'm dealing with today. What do you do when there is scriptural or doctrinal controversy? What do you do when there is scriptural or doctrinal controversy? And that is what I'm dealing with today. And I'm going to start by dealing with the biggest, probably the biggest controversy doctrinally over the last, uh, what would you say? It's been hundreds of years now, hundreds of years that rages in the body of Christ. And then we're going to look at it and we're going to ask ourselves the question, should I get involved with this massive debate, this massive controversy? Um, but let's talk about some principles that help us to deal with these, uh, with these controversies. Let me deal with a, a lesser one because it's, it's obviously, uh, it's, it's affecting people, but it's not been around for as long. So you hear me often talk about the hyper grace controversy. And it is, it is controversial because you can see the effect that it's having on people, right? Uh, many that are, I talked to a pastor about this yesterday, many that are in the camp of, uh, they wouldn't call it hyper grace. They would just call it grace. Uh, it, it's really taking people to a place where they're lenient on sin. They don't care about sin. They don't even think, a lot of them don't even believe sin matters anymore because it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did, all of that. So you have to take that back to scripture and you have to say, does this line up with what the New Testament teaches? Does this line up with what the apostles were teaching the early church? Is this something that they were uh, uh, okay with? Right. So you start to realize you've got to investigate things for yourself. And just because something's popular does not mean that it's right. That's something to keep in mind. And first, put it in the comments. Just because something's popular doesn't mean that it's right. That's a huge thing we got to get in our minds because there's, there are doctrines that'll sweep through the world, sweep through America. And there's all kinds of people reading the books and going to the conferences and all that. And just because something's popular doesn't mean it's right. And so you have to always judge those things. You have to say, hey, I know a lot of people are doing this. I know a lot of people are saying this. I know a lot of people are preaching this, but does it line up with the scripture? Does it line up with the written word of almighty God? And if it doesn't, then we have to be humble enough to align our lives with the word of God. And so here, uh, I like to push things back, right, to practical living. I like to push things back. Any, any, let, let me say it this way. Any doctrinal belief should directly affect how you live. And that's something I do want you to write in your notes. And I do want you to put in the comments because this is, this really is the crux of the matter. Any doctrinal belief that you hold should directly affect 
how you live. So it's not just uh, philosophy. It's not theology for theology's sake. And this is a mistake I think a lot of people make right now. You know, we live, we live in a generation where, you know, everybody thinks they've got the, 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 the right answer. Everybody thinks that they're the next great theologian. But here's a problem that we, that we face. If all we are doing is theology for theology's sake, it's a waste of time. It's a total waste of time. If there's no practical use, if there's no practical use, then what's the point of all the doctrinal study, all of the theology that you're doing? What's the point? If it does not impact your culture, if it does not impact your generation, if it doesn't impact the lives of those around you, if it doesn't push you to any type of practical ministry, then it's worthless. It's worthless. And Paul knew this. Paul said, I didn't come to you. I didn't come to you with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but with, in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Ghost so that your faith would not rest in what? The wisdom of men. But in what? The power of God. And Paul had to teach that to the Corinthian church. And he learned it firsthand when he was in Athens. And he shows up and starts to debate the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of the day and tries to use their idols as a uh, 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 illustrated sermon and uh, he, he starts to philosophically talk about the, the idol that was given to the unknown God. And the Bible says at the end of all of his dissertation, there is no uh, massive impact made in the crowd. A f- only a few people believed. Only a few. Some said, we'll listen to you again sometime. Others said, you're crazy. And so using the wisdom of men, it was his least impactful ministry experience of his entire life ever. And he learned a lesson. Okay. It's not about men's wisdom. It's about the power and demonstration of the Holy spirit. So he's talking about practical uh, impact making on that's made on lives versus straight philosophy and theology for theology's sake. If all we're doing is always learning this new stuff and we're just debating others it's and we're not actually impacting people it's worthless because any doctrinal belief you hold should affect your life it should affect your life and so i want to deal with that because there are a lot of debates that go on i saw a funny meme online that said if you can't afford to go to Bible school, just question a Calvinist and you'll get lectures for free. <laughs> totally agree with that. If you can't afford to go to Bible school, just question a Calvinist and you'll get lectures for free. Totally agree. Uh, been there, done that. But there's debates that rage, you know, people want to argue and they want to argue their do- doctrine, argue their belief. But the question is, is your life making any impact in your generation? 
Is it making any impact on your friends, family, loved ones, coworkers? Does it, does your, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about God, what you believe about Christ, does it make any practical impact? If not, it's worthless knowledge. It's worthless if you don't use it. And so, uh, the, the, debate, the debate that's been raging for hundreds of years that I want to I talk about um, and then answer the question, should I get involved, is this uh, debate about salvation, this debate about salvation. I'm sure all of you have encountered it at one time or another. Depends on what church you grew up in. Some of you grew up in the Baptist church, Presbyterian church, you got saved uh, in those churches, and maybe you got filled with the Holy Spirit or went to a revival. Now you're full gospel. Now you're uh, Pentecostal, whatever it might be. And so this, this debate rages among denominational Protestant churches. And it's this debate about salvation. And I want to talk about it because I want to talk about how we should deal with it and, and what, what it should mean to us, right? So First of all, if you're not familiar with the debate, let me quickly break it down for you. Quickly break it down. Um, there are people that they call themselves reformed. They might be Calvinists, you know, reformed Calvinists. And then there are those like us who are uh, more Arminian in our belief system regarding salvation. Well, if you don't know the difference, let me just quickly break it down. Those that are reformed, which is not us, those that are reformed believe that salvation is one-sided. They believe salvation is one-sided, that God does everything and you do nothing. And that's, that is an honest interpretation of that type of salvation doctrine. It's called monergism. Mono meaning one, mono. Monergism. It means that God does all the parts of salvation. That and, and if I were to break it down for you the way that they break it down in five points, uh, it's the acronym TULIP, if you've ever heard it, that number one, the T, is that, that people on the earth are totally depraved, meaning they're dead in sin. They have no ability whatsoever to choose God, to obey God, to even hear his voice, listen to him. They think the things of God are foolishness. They're at enmity with God. And, and they're totally depraved. They have no way to make a choice to serve the Lord or even to be saved. So that's the first thing that they, that they believe. And these are kind of um, in, in a domino fashion. You have to believe one to believe the next. The next thing they believe is that because nobody is able to choose God, that God is the one who had to unconditionally elect people ahead of time from the foundations of the earth before the foundations of the earth, chose the people that would be his and made up his mind about who would go to heaven ultimately and who would go to hell. He chose them before the foundations of the world were laid. So he, he, it was an unconditional election. What does that mean? That the, the election that he made, the choice he made, is not dependent or based upon anything you'd ever do. It's not dependent upon a prayer you'd pray. It's not dependent on... Uh, how you'd respond to a gospel message. It's none of that. It's just the fact that he picked you and it's unconditional. The next thing they believe is that uh, the atonement that ha took place through the blood of Jesus is limited. So what does that mean? It means that when Jesus died on the cross, 
They believe his blood was not for everyone in its efficacy. It was not for everyone. It was only for the ones God chose. So let's say the world had, has 7 billion people in it and God only chose 1 billion of those people. Then when Jesus died, then his blood was only for those 1 billion, not for the whole 7 billion. That's called limited atonement. Again, this is the acronym TULIP. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. Jesus' blood was only for those that God chose from the foundations of the world. Then, the I stands for irresistible grace. That means that when his grace was extended toward you for salvation, that at some point or another during your life, you will hear the gospel and you will respond to it because you have no ability to resist his grace. You will not hear the gospel message, feel the spirit pulling you to salvation and say, no, that's not for me. It's impossible. They say that you will not be able to resist God's grace. That's the fourth point of Calvinism. And then finally, the P of TULIP stands for uh, the perseverance, or some would say the, um, the preservation of the saints which means that after you receive your salvation, that you will continue on in acts of righteousness, following God's law, obeying him for the rest of time until you die or until Christ returns. So those five things make up the belief system of the majority of the reformed Calvinist believers out there. And everything about your salvation is totally dependent upon God and not nothing to do with you whatsoever, nothing to do with you. And so um, the problem with this is that this is hugely debated in Protestant churches. Of course, we don't believe these things. We don't believe these things. Although the Bible does teach, now let's say, well, what, what about us? What do we believe? Well, although the Bible does teach that uh, all have sinned, you're born into sin, uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that all are dead in trespasses and in sins. No question. The Bible does Teach that. And although men are depraved, I don't believe, and I'm sure you don't, that they are totally depraved to the point where they cannot respond to the gospel. On the other hand, what I believe is as Paul taught in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So think about this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul teaches that uh, no one has any excuse for saying there's not a God. Because in Romans 1, he says, look at nature, look at his creation. There's enough proof in his creation that no one can say, I didn't know there was a God. Paul said, you are without excuse. You're without excuse to say that. But again, Paul makes the point that without the gospel message, there can be no salvation. Without the gospel message, and again, he echoes this in Romans chapter 10, without someone hearing the gospel, they cannot be saved. So Paul's saying there's, not, there's evidence of God's existence in creation, but it's not enough to save you. It's not enough to bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? And so it, it takes the gospel for any man to be saved. So I believe that because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, 
that when the gospel comes to a man or woman, that gospel message empowers them. It empowers them to believe the gospel message and to receive Christ. The gospel is an empowering message. It's a message that holds supernatural force and faith within it. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So catch this now. Um, I know we use that for every different kind of faith, you know, faith on healing, faith for finances. But in its purest context, Paul's talking about faith to be saved, faith to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, uh, and, and it gets done talking about, and that's called the Romans road, you know, to salvation, Romans chapter 10. So he's talking about the fact that when the gospel message comes to you, it empowers you and gives you faith to be saved. Well, does that faith come from God? Well, of course it does. You don't generate your own faith. It does come from God. And so when that gospel message is preached to you, faith does enter your heart and give you the ability to believe it. It gives you the ability to believe it. Uh, and when it comes to uh, God electing people, I believe that he elected a corporate body, not elected individuals, but it's like saying this, think of it this way. And I know this is an imperfect analogy and it truly is, but think about if you knew there's a train that's leaving Florida headed to Atlanta, Georgia, an Amtrak train. And if I get on it in Fort Lauderdale, then I know for a fact it's going to stop in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, think about this. The train itself is already predestined for Atlanta. So now, if I were to get on the train, then I, without question, will end in Atlanta, Georgia. But if I do not get on the train, there's no way I'll end up in Atlanta, Georgia. And so though the, the vehicle is predestined, Every individual is not. We still have to choose to get on the train. What if I didn't even know there was a train? Then I can't get on it. That's the same for people that don't hear the gospel. Well, I never heard the gospel. Then you didn't know about the train. And you have no ability to get on a train you don't know about. And so those that get on the train, we know where they're headed. Because it, that whole corporate group is elected. Those that are in Christ... The train is called Christ. When you're in Christ, we know where we're going. It's predestined. That whole corporate body is predestined and elected to end in heaven, to end with God for eternity. And so that's how we know. And that's what we would believe about the election of God is that the corporate body of Christ is predestined for uh, eternity in heaven and with God. And then, of course, limited atonement, you know, you have to twist all, that's why there are many, and I don't know if you know this or not, that's why there are many Calvinists, Reformed Calvinists, that they'll even reject point number three, that the blood of Jesus was a limited atonement. They reject that openly. And that's why there's a difference between four-point Calvinists and five-point Calvinists. The four-point Calvinists say, there's no way I believe that the blood of Jesus wasn't for everybody. I, I refuse to believe that. They, that's too controversial for them. They're not, they can't get on board with that. And so you even have a division among those that are reformed. Well, I don't, I don't believe the blood of Jesus wasn't for everybody. You have to twist a whole lot of scripture to say that God is not truly willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
How could God be willing for all to come to repentance and for none to perish, but then not make provision for none to perish, not make provision for all to come to repentance? It it seems to be a contradiction of scripture. And again, I'm not I'm not saying these people are are stupid or foolish or anything. That's why this debate has raged for hundreds of years from the smartest people in the Christian body. I mean, smartest. And so there are those that say, well, I don't believe that, that that Christ's blood was limited to those that God elected. And they're in the reform camp. As Christians that are not reformed, we don't believe that the blood of Jesus was just for some people. In fact, uh, I'll take you to one scripture. Uh, that'll, that'll help you and understand this. Um, go to first John chapter two. Now, again, I look at these things and take them at face value and in context, uh, go to this, this verse will help you first John chapter two. Listen to this. First John chapter two, verses one and two. This will help you with this point. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Look at verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see that? Not ju- and he's writing to Christians there and saying he, if we do sin, he's the propitiation for our sins, but not just for ours, but for the whole world's sins. So that seems to be a very contradictory verse to what they believe, that the blood of Jesus is only for those that God chose. This verse says that if he's not just the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, world. That's huge for the sins of the whole world. So we don't believe that Christ's blood is limited only to the elect. And then of course, irresistible grace. They say, well, when God's grace comes to you, when the gospel message is preached to you, uh, you know, you don't have the, the ability to reject it. You don't have the ability to resist it. Well, again, these things are like dominoes right? You have to believe them one by one or they, or the argument falls apart. So when we realize then that though men are depraved, the gospel gives us the ability, the faith to believe it. And then though there is an election, it's a corporate election of the group of us that are come into the body of Christ. The body of Christ is elected for heaven and for eternity. And then of course, we don't believe that Christ's blood is limited to those that God chose only So that means that there are people because God is willing that none should perish and his Jesus' blood is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That means there will be people who will hear the gospel preached and will reject the gospel message. By their own will, will reject the gospel message and will uh, end up obviously away from God. And obviously they will end up in hell because they've rejected the truth. They've rejected the truth. Um, and in fact, the Bible does teach that uh, when, the, when the end time does come, 
Let me show you. If you weren't familiar with this passage before, let me show it to you now. Listen to this. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is prophesying what's going to happen in the end of time. And he's talking about people who will be here when the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, uh, basically is known by the world and, and, and the Antichrist takes power. But look what the Bible says. And the lawless one will be revealed. This is verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why are they perishing? Look at, look at this verse. Who are perishing, verse 10, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Notice why God sent the delusion. Because they already refused to believe the truth and be saved. That doesn't sound to me like a verse of scripture that describes uh, people that didn't have the ability to believe the truth because God did not extend that grace to them that they couldn't resist. See, that's what reformed people believe. That, well, you know, no one... Uh, that God extends his grace to can resist that grace. Well, here's a group of people that God is now punishing them because they refuse to believe, not because they didn't have grace extended to them, not because they weren't elected, but because they refused to believe the truth and be saved. So because they refused it, now God will send a strong delusion upon them and cause them to believe a lie. And of course, it's too late at that point. But this this passage of scripture seems to deal with a group of people who made a free will choice to refuse the truth and be saved. You see that? So, and then here we get into this final point of what they believe and what we believe, which is the perseverance of the saints. So here's a huge, here is a huge controversial point, right? That... And, and, and this is going to help you. I, I, I know there's like surface people that are like dropping off because this is a little deep for them. But you got to get into these d- deep discussions sometimes because we're dealing with it. We're faced with it. And I've had people that have been destroyed by this, that I've talked to years later, destroyed by this teaching. So there's this huge thing that takes place where if we see someone backslide, right? They were serving God, then they fell back into sin, you know, they left the church, they left the faith, they're apostate, right? Because of this final one, this perseverance of the saints, we have a very different belief than those who are reformed about what has happened to those types of people. We would say they backslid. They were saved, but now they're apostate. They left the faith, they left the church, they're not living for God anymore. I mean, put a hand up in the comments if you know even one person that that's happened to them. That at one point they were saved, they were on fire, they were in church, they were serving God, and now they're not. They're not, they're not living for Christ, they're not going to church, they've left the faith, they're living in sin, unrepentant sin. We all know people like that. We all know people like that. That 
at one time they were serving God and now they're not. They're just not serving God anymore and there's no other way to put it. They've just chosen to leave, okay? Well, that's not how the Reformed would put this. They'd say, no, 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 no. They didn't backslide. They did not leave the faith. Uh, They're not apostate. What actually happened to them is that they never were truly saved in the first place, or they would call it a false conversion. They pretended they were saved. They looked like they were serving God. They went through the motions. They came to church. They acted like they were saved. But the fact that they left the faith is proof that they were never really saved in the first place. Well, why do they believe that? Well, obviously it's it's something that's based on scripture that they've, they've studied out and that they, they believe that it leads them into this uh, conclusion. But again, it's, it's defined by this f- fifth point of Calvinism that uh, if you're truly a Christian, you will persevere to the end, which has been changed by some because that looks like works on your point part. But they say, no, you'll be preserved by God. P, preserved by God. Uh, he will keep you. He will not let you fall away. You will persevere to the end and be saved if you're truly saved. If you're truly saved, that's, yes, that's the, that's exactly right, Bethany. That is the eternal security doctrine that is preached by the reformed uh, Calvinists, whether they're Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever. Um, The eternal security is once you're saved. Now I had to learn something. I had to learn something um, from growing up Pentecostal. I didn't understand this eternal security doctrine my whole life. I thought, the way I heard Pentecostals talk about it, I thought that I was, I know Pentecostals have confused hyper grace with eternal security, and they're not the same thing whatsoever. Perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints says that if you are truly a Christian, that you will continue through the rest of your life living for the Lord, living holy, living righteous, not living in sin. You will live a holy lifestyle until Jesus comes or until you die. But the way I heard Pentecostals describe it, they described eternal security like hyper grace. Like, well, now that I'm saved, I can do anything I want. Now I'll never fall away. That is not what reformed Calvinists believe whatsoever. They believe that if you get saved and then go back into living however you want, you never were truly saved. That's what hyper grace people believe, that now that you're saved, you can do whatever you want because his grace forgives your past, present, future sins. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. That's not eternal security. Those that are reformed Calvinists would definitely tell you if a person shows signs that they're no longer living for the Lord, they were never really converted because if they were, they'd be living holy and righteous until the coming of Christ. And that would be the honest, uh, explanation of the perseverance and the preservation of the saints without question. So what do we believe as Pentecostals? Well, obviously we believe that you can lose what God gave you or what you received by faith, that though God will never leave you, though Christ will be with you always, that God will always uphold his side of the covenant. People can walk away from what is theirs? They can willfully walk away from. See, because here's the thing. Think about this logically. Think about this logically. 
If, see, here's where it gets, gets hard for people to understand. If you truly got saved, and as they believe, because you are, you will live holy and righteous for the rest of your life. Well, if that's an automatic thing, why did the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter write these letters to the churches encouraging Christians not to fall back into sin? If true Christians would never fall back into sin, what's, what is the need for the exhortation, for the admonishing, for the correction, for the reproof? What's the need for that? If true Christians would never fall back into sin, they would live holy and righteous until the coming of Christ or until their death. There's a lot of papyrus that's been discovered <laughs> that we have record of people being instructed by Paul and Peter and others to not live in sin. Don't fall back into sin. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians. Both of them are. So what's the point of that? I'll give you another one. What's the point of Paul the Apostle saying in 1 Corinthians 9.27? I must discipline my body on a daily basis so that after having preached to others, I don't become disqualified. Disqualified. One translation reads, become a reprobate. Crazy. So Paul's even saying, I can live this whole Christian life and preach the gospel of Christ, and the gospel of God, and myself be disqualified if I don't keep myself under control. So, so that, that kind of destroys this argument, doesn't it? Because it's like, if you were a true Christian, Paul, you would live holy and righteous for the rest of your life. So there, needs, there doesn't need to be any correction. There doesn't need to be any instruction to not fall back into sin. They won't. They won't if they're truly saved. But of course, you and I know that there are many Christians that were truly Christians, that believed in their heart, that they confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They believed in their heart God raised Jesus from the dead. They were living righteous lives at one point. They were living holy before the Lord. They were accomplishing what God called them to do. But they didn't keep control they didn't continue to renew their mind. They didn't continue to control their flesh and they fell back into sin. And so as a result, do I say, well, those people were never truly saved in the first place? No, I don't say that. I don't say that because you have to think about it. Well, I'll give you an example. You say, well, there's no examples in the, in the New Testament of, of Christians falling back into sin. Okay, we'll go to Acts chapter 8. Because the Bible says, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 9, of course, you know this is where Philip is preaching the gospel in Samaria. And uh, you know about Simon the sorcerer, who is seeing all these things. Now, the Bible says, I'll read you starting in verse 9, Acts 8, 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, 
he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we have record here from the Holy Spirit that Simon the sorcerer got saved under the ministry of Philip and baptized in water. And baptized, which they would not do for anyone unless they were they, they had made a, a confession of faith. They didn't baptize unbelievers. He was saved. Then you move down, and after he sees Peter and John laying hands on the believers to be filled with the Holy Ghost, and they're getting filled with the Holy Ghost, his lust for power starts again. And look at this. Verse, nine, uh, verse 18. Now when Simon the sorcerer saw, and that doesn't call him the sorcerer anymore because he was, he was saved. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Hmm. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, real, I hope you realize that even though this is all taking place in the same chapter, that obviously there was a time period here because Philip was in Samaria preaching the gospel. And after all these people were getting saved and baptized and all that, he had to send word back to Jerusalem to send the apostles, Peter and John, to come lay their hands. They then had to travel from Jerusalem to Samaria and then begin their ministry of laying on of hands to the people that got saved and Simon saw it. So obviously there's a period of time, even if it's only a few days, where Simon was saved and baptized and then a few days are passing and this happens and he commits this sin. And it's not like, it's not like this is a small thing. Peter was the one that rebuked him and said, your heart's not right before God. Repent of your wickedness so that your heart can be forgiven. You're in the gall of business. You're in the bond of iniquity. Simon was in the bond of iniquity. How do you go from being a Christian that was baptized and you're saved to going back into the bond? You're in the prison of sin. Now, I don't know. This is so serious from Peter that he said, repent that you may be forgiven of this that's taken your heart over. So here's a picture. Here's a clear picture of a, of a person in the New Testament that was saved. This was not a false conversion. Who was saved. The Bible says so. Unless the Holy Spirit's wrong, and I don't think that he was. And so, uh, you can see it clearly. That people say, well, he didn't have... He wasn't saved because he didn't persevere. No, he was saved. But you have to keep control. You have to walk in the spirit, not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the Bible teaches. And Lynn Ann brings up Hebrews 6, and others will bring up Hebrews 10. Uh, but the reason I didn't bring those two passages up, Lynn Ann, is because they're heavily debated about what they mean in regards to salvation. Heavily debated. And while I believe what you would believe, Lynn Ann, about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and Hebrews 10... There are many that don't. But here's a clear picture of, of Simon losing out on what God's given him. Losing out. And so uh, 
you start to ask yourself, all right, so what's the deal? Now, here's where I want to deal with this. How should we then respond to this stuff? How should we deal with it? Well, let's think about this logically, okay? Let's think about this logically. I'm an evangelist. If I was a reformed Calvinist, knowing that people need to be saved, do you not think that what I would believe about the Bible would take away my urgency from evangelizing the lost? I mean, let's, let's think about it logically, right? If I was to believe as a Reformed Calvinist, which they do believe, that God's already chosen who his people are going to be, and he will, he will reach his people. He will reach his people because uh, they've been unconditionally elected. Jesus' blood's already been shed for them. And when they get that grace of the gospel, they won't be able to resist it. They will come into the kingdom. Okay, I believe those things. Now, do I have an urgency to go reach the lost? Not at all. Because if I have any kind of a logical brain, I'm going to say, well, you know what? Whether I personally go do it or not, someone will. Someone will. Because God's already chosen them. Someone's going to reach them. It may not be me, but that's okay. That's okay. Someone will reach them. Even Dr. John MacArthur. Now think about how sad this is. And he's a very intelligent man. But he was asked in a public forum, in a public Q&A, Dr. John, if we believe the way we do, and I'm paraphrasing the question, if we believe the way we do regarding, uh, you know, salvation and our salvation doctrine, which I've just outlined for you, then why should we work to go reach the lost? Why should we work to evangelize? Do you know what his answer was? This was his answer. Because the Bible tells us to. <laughs> that, that was Dr. John's answer to that extremely important question. Why do you, listen, Jesus put so much urgency in his disciples, he said, we've got to work while it's yet day. John 9, 4. For the night comes where no man can work. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is yet day. Put a time limit on it and said, be urgent. There's a time limit. We got to work while it's day. Night is coming where no man can work. No man can work. Okay, but if he's going to fulfill his purpose anyway, who cares about the time limit? That doesn't make any sense. What Jesus should have said if he believed in reformed Calvinism, Jesus should have said, yes, there is night coming, but be of good cheer because I will work out all of my purposes perfectly and will not miss one. And of course, they'll always go back to that passage that uh, where Jesus says, Lord, God, uh, Father, I will not lose one that you've put in my hand. I'll not lose one of them. I'll not lose one of them. Well, let me tell you something. What's the urgency then? If that's the way you want to interpret that passage, what's the urgency of preaching the gospel? Because the elect will hear the gospel. I don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. Somebody will. See, it puts no urgency in your heart. 
puts no urgency in your heart to reach the lost. None. To actually do the work that the Bible commands us to do. And we are commanded. Every Christian is commanded to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel, to reach those that are unsaved. Second thing. Uh, so here, here's the way I, <laughs> I watched a debate one time on YouTube between two extremely intelligent men, theologians. Dr. Michael Brown, who wrote the Hyper Grace book I've told you about, he's Pentecostal, he's charismatic, he is not a reformed Calvinist, and he debated Dr. James White, who is reformed, who uh, believes the things that I told you today, even stronger than I outlined it, probably, and um, I want, they, they came together and they're friends, it was the no animosity, but it was a very worked up debate because they both believe what they believe. And in that debate, it lasted for three hours. I watched it for three hours. And they both had their turns to speak without being interrupted and they brought forth their points and all these things. And you know, you come to the end of that and neither one had won the debate. They both had done such a great job presenting their cases. And these are both very intelligent men that know the original languages of the scripture and everything. No one had won. Three hours gone, and there was no conclusion. Nobody won the debate. And that's why this debate has raged for hundreds of years. So here's a question that we want to answer today, because this is something that you, if not, I'd be interested. How many of you have experienced this uh, argument either with a Calvinist, or you've, heard, you've been to a church that believes this way, or you have friends that believe this way, or loved ones who live this way, You've, this teaching has impacted your life in some way or another in your Christian life. Put a hand up in the comments. It, you, just, uh, just YouTube it, Liz. Michael Brown, James White debate. Mike Frost has, Rachel has, um, AJ has. I mean, you're going to find it. It's, you're going to have it. Bethany has. All, all, I, I'm, I'm guaranteeing most of you have. So, Gina, Jamie, I get it. I have many times. And so you say, well, why, why is this important? I'll tell you why. Because people get caught up debating this rather than doing what the Bible says. You know, there's people that go as far as to call people like me or you a heretic because we don't believe in the doctrines of grace outlined by Calvinism. We're heretics because we don't believe that. And, and so rather than doing the work of the kingdom, there's infighting and people debating each other and getting upset over a debate where even the smartest men in the world that deal with this can't come to a conclusion after having read the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, Aramaic, Latin, going through, quoting context after context and don't seem to come to a, a, a conclusion. So the reason I say, and should you get involved? All right, so here's, here's my opinion, and this is what I want to, this is what I want to, um, this is what I want to get across to you. Liz said, what do they say that happens to the people who fell back that were never saved? They go to hell. They believe they go to hell. Right. That's right, Laura. Even had someone question if we were saved. Or the That's right. And you know what's crazy is this is a sad thing to me because this is a question Dr. Michael Brown asked Dr. James White, who is a Reformed Calvinist, in the debate, he said, do you believe that you're saved? 
Do you believe that you're saved? And the same question was asked of Dr. Michael Brown. And the answer you can only give is as much as the Holy Spirit witnesses to me that I am. Right? It's like, do you know you're saved? Do I know I'm saved? The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. The sad thing is, there's not a way until the very last moments of your life as a Calvinist to know if you were truly saved. Because there might come a time, 10 years in the future, where you fall away from God and realize, I was never really saved in the first place. How sad of an existence that is to live your whole life and never really know if you are one of God's elect. What a sad and scary place to be, to live your whole life without knowing. Maybe 20 years from now, I'll fall back into sin and realize I was never really God's elect in the first place. The funny, the funny meme is, I've never met a Calvinist that didn't believe they were one of God's elect. <laughs> You never meet a Calvinist that believes the doctrines of grace. That's like, yeah, I studied the doctrines of grace and I came to the conclusion I'm not one of the chosen. (laughs) You'll never find that person. But that's scary for them to live that way and to believe that way. And you can never really know to the last seconds of your life whether or not you're truly a Christian. Crazy. That's crazy. So in this debate then, You have to give yourself some parameters because you can get caught up debating people and arguing with people, but what good does it do in regards to the eternal work God's given us? Does no good. So let's say, for example, for sake, watch how I think about this. For sake of argument, okay? Let's say that I don't know that either one of these are true. There you go. That's a great verse to to sum it up, Lenan. Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. So, let's say, for example, that we, we don't know that either one of these is true. Okay? We don't know either one is true. So, let's go down through the five quickly. This is how I think about it. Let's go down through these five quickly and say, okay... I don't know how, as I said at the beginning of this broadcast, what you believe doctrinally should affect the way you live. What you believe doctrinally should affect the way you live. All right, let's hit these five again, not knowing if either one of them, or which I should say, one of them is true. So not knowing which one of them is true. Okay, first, total depravity of man. Men are totally depraved. Okay, so in this context, I don't know, you don't know, which of the people that you're preaching to, sharing the gospel with, we know that all sinners are depraved. So question, if I'm preaching the gospel, am I ever going to be able to go, well, I'm not going to come to your church in that region because I know all the people that are going to come to the revival meetings there are all, not only are they depraved, they're not elect. So it wouldn't matter if I came to preach anyway because none of those people are going to get saved because none of them are elect. Even if that, even if election is true the way they preach it, and even if there is total depravity the way they believe it, 
I don't know those people. I don't know who they are. I'm human. I can't look across a crowd of people and say, this group is God's elect. All of you over here have not been chosen by God. I don't know. I'm a human being. I don't know. Even if God has elected individuals, I don't know who they are. I've got no idea as an evangelist or a Christian. So what am I supposed to do? Wait until the Lord gives me a revelation about my coworker? Say, actually, they are one of my elect. Share the gospel with them. I'm not, I, I can't wait on that. There's nowhere in the Bible that, that teaches us to wait on some kind of inward revelation like that. So then that means that I should, uh, without prejudice, preach the gospel to all that I can, right? Since I don't know who the elect are, if you were to believe in that direction, if God's elected individuals, I don't know who they are. So I'm going to preach to everyone like they're all elect and need to come to Christ. Wouldn't that be the only intelligent thing to do? Preach to everyone as though they were all the elect that need to come to Christ, which means I need the same urgency that I would need even if I was full gospel, not reformed, to preach to all. Okay, you say, well, I don't, I, I'm not sure if people are totally depraved or just partially depraved. I'm not sure if they're individually elected or corporately elected, I don't know. I'm not sure about limited atonement, but how would limited atonement affect how you practically minister to the lost? It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether Jesus blood was only shed for the elect or whether it was shed for all peoples. It doesn't matter to me, the preacher, because I'm not the one choosing. I'm the one giving the gospel the Lord told me to preach. And so I'll give it to all men. All men. And you know what? If they are elected individually, they'll come to Christ. If everybody has the ability to jump on the train that is corporately elected to go to heaven, then they will either come to Christ or they'll reject the gospel. That's not up to me. That is not up to me. I don't get to choose who gets to respond to the gospel and who doesn't. I don't get to choose. I'll give you another thing. I was in Rhode Island one time preaching. And I was giving an altar call for salvation. And I could see this couple that, that were not married. And I knew they were living in sin. And I just, I kept the altar call open. Listen, if you've got anything that you need to get right before Christ, tonight's the night. You know, don't, don't wait another minute. And, and so I was, I, was, I was calling and I was waiting. They never made a move. They never got out of their seats, though others did. The altar had people being saved. But they never made a move. And I knew in my spirit, I just knew it by the Holy Spirit, that they weren't living for God. They were sitting there looking guilty, staring at the floor, but they never got up. And I know, I'm saying, I, I didn't go by their look. The Holy Spirit showed me, they're not, they're not living for me. They need to be saved. Okay, well, I don't get that hardly ever. That might be one of the only times the Lord's ever spoken to me. And I think it's because he was teaching me a lesson as a minister. And so my heart for people, I'm like, yeah, I want them to be saved. I want them to be saved. And I, I kept the altar call open as long as I could. And then finally, as they didn't come, we prayed. And the service ended and they picked up their stuff as the service ended. And they were going up the center aisle to leave the church. Well, here's me, young evangelist on fire. I want to see people saved. I wanted them to have one extra chance. And so I made the move to jump off the platform and to go run up the aisle and stop them privately. 
and say, folks, I just wanted to ask you one more time. Is there anything that you need to get right before God? Do you not, do you not need to pray this prayer of repentance? And I was going to do that. I was ready to do it right then. And as I was going to jump off the platform to run up the aisle, the Lord stopped me. And I heard him say to me inwardly, he said, if they won't listen to my voice, why would they listen to your voice? I mean, that hit me like a million pounds in the stomach, like a million pounds. If they won't listen to my voice, why would they listen to your voice? And the, and really what was happening is the whole time I'd been preaching the whole time I'd been giving that altar call. Of course, the Lord had been talking to them. The Bible says no man can be saved unless the spirit draws him. So of course, He's been talking to them that whole time and they rejected his voice. And he told me, and I believe the reason God revealed this to me, this whole process is he was teaching me this lesson. If they won't listen to my voice, they won't listen to your voice. And I understood it's not my job to make people get saved. It is my job to preach the unadulterated gospel to men and women across, without prejudice and let the Spirit call them to salvation, but they've got to make a move. Well, it doesn't matter then, does it? Which side of this debate that you stand on? Because yes, people are depraved, yes, even if God elected them individually or if he elected them corporately, whether the blood was shed only for the elect or if it was shed for all men, how does that change what I do? Okay, number four, irresistible grace. You can argue if you want to, well, the people that came to the altar had to come to the altar because God had already elected them. And so they couldn't resist the grace when it was provided to them. They had to respond because they were God's elect. They had to come to the altar. What does that matter to me? What does that matter to me? Does that change the way I preach? No. Does that change the way I give the call for repentance? No. Nothing about my ministry changes if I believe that or the other, other than possibly my urgency to do the work. That's it. My preaching doesn't change. What about perseverance of the saints? Well, if they're saved, they'll continue to be saved. Does that change my preaching? Does that change my ministry? Does that change my call to repentance? Does that change any practical aspect of how I deal with the gospel going out to men? Not at all. Not at all. If I say, hey, you know, uh, maybe those that are coming down, because you know, I've had pastors tell me, and of course we have rededications to Christ. You know, I had a pastor tell me last year, I haven't seen that man in years. He left church, never came back. He's come back for this revival. Now he's come to the altar to be saved. And the pastor was crying and the man was crying. Well, what am I going to say? Well, he doesn't need to be at the altar, pastor, because... If he walked away from the faith, then he's simply not one of God's elect. It's not for me to judge a man's heart. It's not for me to judge a man's heart. I let God judge the sin of, of the hearts of men and the lives of men. I just preach the gospel. I preach the gospel. You see, and here's the point I was getting into at the very beginning. What's the point of engaging in this debate for the sake of seeming smart, for the sake of lecturing people, it doesn't change the practical work you're called to do for the Lord. So what are we supposed to do? Just because if we become Reformed Calvinists, 
We're supposed to stop going into all the world, making disciples of all nations. We're supposed to stop that because we just know that we've got some that are elect. They'll come in anyway. You know, they'll, they'll, one way or another, God's going to fulfill his purpose. Wow, that deflates every balloon. That deflates every balloon. You know what I would rather find out? I'll tell you what I would, if I think about it in this way. And, and trust me, I'm not saying theology is not important. And I'm not saying rightly dividing the word is not important. That's why we're doing the whole Bible study course coming up. I believe in that more than you know, anything because it affects the way you live. But you know what I would rather find out? I would rather be a full gospel Pentecostal and stand in those belief systems and get to heaven and find out Calvinism was true. That God had an elect of individuals. That the blood of Jesus was limited. That I would rather get to heaven and find out that was true knowing that I had given everything I had to reach the lost and to preach the gospel and to go into all the world, I went at it like everyone had an opportunity. Then I would live my whole life as a Reformed Calvinist when it came to my salvation theology and just have this deflated balloon. Because if you're a logical thinker, I don't know how you stay urgent to do the work of the Lord knowing that it doesn't even matter, knowing that your work doesn't even matter. Because that's, that's the only thing, listen, that's the only thing you can conclude. <laughs> if, you're, if you can think things out to the nth degree, my work didn't matter. Because if I hadn't done it, someone would have. I mean, that's, that, that steals every bit of urgency from your life in Christ. If I... If I hadn't done it, someone else would because God already had his plans intact, right? I would rather get to heaven that way than I would be a Calvinist my whole life and get to heaven and find out, hold on, God didn't elect individuals. God did not uh, send Jesus to only shed his blood for the elect. This, no, no, everyone had an opportunity if they'd have heard the gospel, but I, I slacked off because I believed that the work would have just gotten done. I'd rather be on the other side of that. So what do, how do I deal with this? When I'm, when I'm questioned, when I'm challenged, and I do get challenged on this, and I, I do get questioned about this. I did a, <clears throat> one time I did a, a four or five minute video on this subject for YouTube. And I had a guy who was a reformed Calvinist take my video and do a response video that was like an hour and 15 minutes. He did an hour and 15 minutes on what I said in four minutes. <laughs> and you start to realize that there is a pride or an arrogance that seems to rise up in people when they start to live this way rather than an urgency for the lost. So I've come up with this kind of a mantra. Because if people want to believe like that, that's fine. Whatever. Do your thing. If you want to be a reformed Calvinist, if you want to go that direction, if you want to be a cessationist, have at it. That's your deal. That's your deal. But here's how I've decided to deal with it. I won't have a problem with your salvation theology as long as two things are true. Number one, 
I see you actively evangelizing the lost. That's one. Number one, I've got no problem with your salvation theology as long as, number one, I can see you actively evangelizing the lost with urgency. I'm talking about going after it the way Christ told his disciples to do and the early church, which turned the world upside down. If I see you're doing that, good. And number two, you preach holiness, you live holy. Why? Because if I ever saw somebody that said, you know, use that previous definition that I used to hear about eternal security, well, I'm saved and nothing can take me out of the hands of God. What can separate me from the love of God? Right, Romans. What can separate, can anything, No, nothing. So if that's the stance you take, I do have a problem with you. That if you're using your theology to live in a way that's displeasing to God, I have a problem with you. If you're using your theology to not work and do the work of the kingdom, I have a problem with you. But if you're living for the Lord and if you're urgently evangelizing the lost, I've got no problem. Believe what you want. But it's, see, remember this, I'm bringing it back. It's all, how does your theology impact your practical life in Christ? Is it stopping you from doing the work of God or pushing you, pushing you to do the work of God? Because if it's not pushing you to do the work of God, you've got a problem. If you think people are dying and going to hell and that's okay with you because if you don't get to them, somebody will, then your urgency has gone and you're not living in a way that Jesus modeled, the disciples modeled, the early church modeled, and that the word of God teaches us to live in a way uh, uh, that Christ could come at any moment. And, you know, that there is a doctrine of the church called the imminency, the doctrine of imminency, the imminent return of Christ. We live like he's coming now. Right? We plan for the future, but we live like he's coming now. And, and the thing is, if that's, the, if that's what your theology leads you to, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. Because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's not how Jesus lived, the apostles lived, the early church lived. So I, I don't care what your theology is if you're doing the work. If you're trying to impact your generation with the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm not dealing with miracles. I'm not dealing with healing today. I'm, not dealing, I'm talking about salvation only. So exactly. That's right. Courage and urgency. Apathy is, is terrible, but that's you, you, you can't. And I, and I would hope that everybody would argue with this. If you're a logical thinker, you can't tell me that if you're truly a five point or even four point Calvinist, it does not engender Apathy. You can't tell me that. Because your flesh nature will get involved. Don't tell me that you won't be like, well, you know what? I'm tired today. I'm tired this week. I'm tired this month. I got a lot going on. I'll leave, you know, telling people about Jesus for next month. You can't tell me that that won't happen to the average person. Because your flesh nature says, you know what? God's going to work out his purposes. God's going to do what he will do. He doesn't need me to do it. You know, he's got other people that'll do it. Okay, if that's the way you believe. See, here's what doesn't even make sense, right? Go to Jesus and his uh, declaration to the disciples. The harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers, the laborers, the laborers are what? Few. 
Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would do what? Send forth laborers into his harvest field. Laborers. Let me ask you a question. What is the point of praying to God? You know, because Calvinists believe that the point of prayer, it doesn't change God because you can't change God, obviously. He will do what he has decreed he will do and he'll do nothing else. Nothing else. They believe that. If you don't know that, listen to them sometime. God will do what he decreed he will do and he will do nothing else. That's all. He has always known what he would do from the beginning of time and you won't change that. So why in the world would I obey Jesus then and pray to God, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send laborers into his harvest field? He's going to send them whether I pray or not. He's going to do what he decreed he would do. And if he's, got a, if, he, if he's elected individuals that are going to be saved, then there's no point in me praying that laborers will come because he has the exact amount of laborers he already needs to fulfill his decree and purpose. There's no point in praying, Jesus, that God would send laborers into the harvest field. He'll send what he needs to get the elect he's already uh, a portion for salvation. I don't, I don't need to pray. But Jesus doesn't say things arbitrarily. Jesus isn't wasting his time. He told them to pray. Pray. Pray that God would send laborers into the harvest field. And he was training them to be laborers. Right? Work while it's yet day. Work while it's yet day. So you start to realize your theology should affect the way you live should affect the choices you make. And if you have a theology, think about this, if you have a theology that makes you live differently than how Jesus encouraged people to live, how the apostles encouraged people to live, how the early church continued on living that turned the world upside down and blew Christianity up around the world, then your, then your theology is wrong because your theology is causing you to live in a way that's displeasing to God. That's why hyper-grace is trash. It's nonsense. It's total nonsense. Because it contradicts the scripture and it contradicts the expectations of the master. That's why it's garbage. And so when you get into this, if people hit you with these different things, that's why I'm teaching you this. I'm teaching you so that, because this isn't the only area where they'll hit you. This isn't the only area where they'll hit you. You say, for example... Um, if we did for a second before I pray, get into miracles. Well, what about, why do you still pray? You still believe God does that stuff? And the question I would ask someone like that is, well, don't you believe God can do anything? Well, of course. Don't you believe he's omnipotent? Well, yeah, he's omnipotent. He's, he's all powerful. Okay. So you don't believe that if I would ask him to heal this person, that he could still do it? Well, he could do it, but he stopped, but you believe he stopped doing those things. So you believe God changed. You don't believe that he's the Lord, our God, that does not change. You, you believe that somehow he has changed because he, he's not, he can't do those things. I mean, he doesn't or won't do those things anymore. They happened through the Old Testament. They happened in the New Testament. But for some reason, they stopped happening because God changed. Well, no, he's not changed. Well, then you believe it could happen because God can do anything. And he's in, instructed us to, to pray for those that are sick. So why would I not do it? Right? I always go by, how is this making me live? How is it making me minister to others? 
Does it still show a compassion, a love for others, as Jesus showed? And when, you're, when your theology sits there and encourages you to do nothing, it's a wrong theology. When it brings apathy, it's a wrong theology. When it brings unrighteousness, it's a wrong theology. Always look to see, how does what I believe cause me to think and live? That's the key. Don't get caught up in pointless debates. Push past that. Push past that into actually doing the work of the Lord. And God's anointing you this year. He's anointing you to do his work. He's anointing you more than you ever have been. Why? We're going to take possession. This is our year. You're anointed. Time's running out. God's going to do a quick work through his church. The best he saves for last, not for the beginning, for last. That's the principle. You have the ability to strongly impact your generation. Don't ever look in the mirror and think, well, I don't have what it takes to do what God's called me to do. That's a lie from the devil. You are anointed by God to do great things in the kingdom. And don't let these little debates and controversies throw you off. Learn how to, that's why I took this broadcast to teach you how to think about it. How do I think about it? Is the debate even worth it? Does it change how I live? Does it change what the Bible tells me to do? Does it change how I even think about what the Bible tells me to do? Does it take away my urgency? If it does, it's a waste of your time. Total waste of your time. And so today I'm praying for you that a new fire comes into your spirit. That a new urgency jumps into your spirit. A new boldness jumps into your spirit. See, by the way, I've taught on this before. These are the things necessary in order to be impactful in the kingdom. You have to have an eternal mindset. You have to have boldness. You have to have urgency. And you have to have compassion. That's a love for people. If you don't have these four things, then you will miss out on doing what God's called you to do. An eternal mindset, knowing eternity is coming and time's running out. I've got eternal mindset produces what? Urgency. But with urgency, you need boldness. But with boldness, you need compassion and love, or you'll not do a thing. You'll not do a thing. So let me pray for you today. Let me believe with you that God is going to ignite within you a fresh hunger, urgency, boldness to do what He's called you to do. And to deflect every lie of the devil that said you can't do what God has called you to do because you can. You've got more than enough necessary to do what God's called you to do. You've got more resources than you need to accomplish your purpose. So let me pray. Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. I'm so thankful, Lord, for those that are listening, those that are watching. And today I pray for them that you would give them a fresh hunger today a fresh boldness today, a fresh urgency today, and a fresh compassion today for those that are dying, those that are lost. I pray, Lord, that this would be the year that we would see more people come into the kingdom than ever before. I actually pray this, that we would see more people saved in one year than in the history of our Christianity in the mighty name of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for that. I pray, Lord, from this day forward, that doors would quickly open up. Doors would open unto us to do more things than we've ever done. Opportunity, as Paul wrote, doors of opportunity, doors of opportunity opening up so that we can impact our generation effectively and efficiently. We thank you for that. 
We give you praise, Lord. I pray that you would bless us in this year like we never have. Put the largest seeds in our hand. Let us take divine possession. We'll hold what we've never held. We'll do what we've never done. We'll go where we've never gone. And the Holy Spirit will lead us perfectly. We thank you for that. We give you honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Throw some fire up if you believe it. Constantly said, at what age is a person or a child accountable or held accountable for their actions? It is different for every child. It's different for every child because it's based on their understanding. It's based on what they've been taught. It's based on the maturity level and how quickly they increase in maturity. But one thing we can know from scripture is that infants and uh, uh, children that are under that age, they go to heaven. We know that because David said so regarding his own son and it was inspired in the scripture that when his son died at a, as a baby, David said, I will see him again. I will go to where he is. I will go to where he is. He was telling us by the inspiration of the spirit that his baby went to be with the Lord. We trust in the grace and mercy of God in those situations. Great question. I'm looking forward to doing the Bible study because we'll have question and answer sessions where I'll go live within the private Facebook group and we'll just have full question and answer sessions within the, uh, the private group. And I want to take the time to answer those questions with you guys. It's going to be an excellent ongoing Bible study. Teach the principles. We're going to go through these things. You'll be, it's, it'll be like a, it'll be an extremely enjoyable boot camp to learn how to do these things. <laughs> the slingshot kid said, was the baby elect? It's an excellent question. Uh, it'll be an excellent uh, series that'll help us to, you'll, you'll drastically improve your Bible study, but it'll help you. It'll help you. I'm looking for it. Look at that. Ted said, FYI, this is a testimony from a prayer that I prayed over him in Georgia. Another huge job just came in. I just signed on it. Thank you, Jesus. Giving God praise with Ted Nashley. That's amazing, Ted. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. I want to encourage you today. Sow your seed. You know how to do it. Go to miracleword.com. Uh, I want to give you that opportunity to stand with us financially as we're preaching this gospel. Now, the uh, broadcast is being seen in over 180 nations of the world, all of India now, parts of China, Iran, Iraq, uh, Philippines, Pakistan, um, around the world. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I never envisioned this just a couple of years ago. God opened these doors. You're standing with us. Crusades, people are getting saved, filled with the Holy Ghost. You're a part of that. You're a part of that. And so I want to encourage you to go to miracleword.com. And if you've not partnered with us, I would encourage you to partner with us on a monthly basis. Um, click the partner tab when you get to the website and um, you, can, uh, you can do it there, read all about what we're doing. Nancy had a question. What time will the Bible study be considering the time difference? Um, the, the Bible study will be posted once a week um, and you'll be able to do it at your convenience but the live question and answer sessions, we will announce those as we go. So, for example, our plan is to release the Bible studies every Tuesday. That's our plan right now. Every Tuesday. Of course, when you, when you join in, you'll have plenty of content to go through. Uh, but every week, planning for that Tuesday, you'll have a fresh uh, video Bible study to go through. 
we're going to go through together and I'm going to help you and answer your questions, stuff like that. So uh, don't worry, Nancy, you're not going to miss out on anything. We're going to uh, make sure you get everything you need. Um, also, all digital ways to give are there on the, on the website. Let me say this. Uh, we're so thankful for Dr. Murdoch and his book, 31 Reasons People Don't Receive Their Financial Harvest. It's our gift to you for standing with us in partnership in the month of February. And if you'd like to receive this for your uh, offering of $85 or more, you can go to miracleword.com forward slash offer. Uh, as far as the $250 mark, we have another book that we're going to get ready to do because Lester Summerall's books, apparently they have issues with their distribution rights. And then for $1,000 or more, uh, we're going to put, you have that slide, we're putting the net Bible uh, in with those other two. I just sent one of these to my uncle, my favorite tool, my favorite resource, uh, which I'll teach you about this too and all about learning how to use it because it's free online. Here's what people don't know. Um, you can get these notes. They made the notes available and everything, which is awesome. I love to have the leather-like version right in front of me. I love to have the Bible with me. And um, we're going we're gonna to send that to you as well. I'll teach you how to use it. There's four different types of notes within that Bible. And um, man, is it awesome. I mean, like the stuff, you can, the stuff you can see that you've never been able to see before because you weren't uh, a scholar on the board of a translation committee. The stuff you see in there is like amazing. It's amazing and so helpful. So helpful. So looking forward to it. Can't wait for that class to start. And um, I will say this before, hopefully Tiffany doesn't have a heart attack when I say it, but we're also making plans uh, very soon to release the keyboard course that we've been talking about. Worship keyboard. She just put a blanket over her head in the back. She's quitting the ministry. Uh, the keyboard course this year is going to be available to those that want to learn how to get to play keyboard, to do worship, all these different things, to learn how to play different styles that we do, uh, all the different stuff. It's going to be amazing. We're very much looking forward to that. That will be coming available after the Bible study. Tiffany's back with us now. After the Bible study. But we have plans to bring it to you. It's going to be awesome. So many people want to, want to learn. I get questions everywhere I go. Could you sit with me? Could you teach me this? Could you, I'm just going to put it all in one course. And there will be ha we'll have stuff for beginners, intermediate, advanced. And we're going to go beyond that to uh, eventually, after we're done teaching the keyboard, teaching on uh, understanding synth synthesis, all that stuff, how to build your own patches, sounds, so that you can always do exactly what you need to do for your church and uh, playing for your band at your church, playing behind your pastor, all of those things, uh, teaching you how to learn by ear, things like that. It's going to be great. Very much looking forward to releasing that as well. We've got a lot of good things planned for you. I love you so much. Thank you for those that are sewing. Thanks for standing with us and uh, pray for Tiffany's blood pressure. We'll talk to you again very soon. Have a great day. I'll see you later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.